So welcome back to Athletes Unplugged. I'm your host, Aquel Jackson, and thanks for joining us. Our next guest joining the show is Damon West. He's a former college quarterback who was given a life sentence out of the state of Texas. He's now a best-selling author, motivational speaker, and he's here to talk about his journey and his new lease on life while serving others. So, Damon, thank you again for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Man, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today, brother. Thank you. How'd you find me? So, so I did a podcast, a guy named Brian Levinson, and he's about, you know, the brain and uh, mental health and what have you. And we started chatting offline and he was like, man, I, I have a really good person. I think you should, you should reach out to. And I'm like, it's a long shot. It's a hell Mary, but why not? And literally right. you got back to me within a day or two and I was highly surprised. So uh, again, that's why I had to pick your book up, The Changing Agent. I read it. It's impactful. If you haven't read it, it is an amazing story of, of, of just overcoming just the worst conditions ever. But before we get into all of that, I want to go back to your upbringing. You're from Port Arthur, Texas. Yeah. Your father was a sports writer for many years. Your mother's an educator. Um, walk me through that experience growing up in Port Arthur and because I read your book, you mentioned there was a there was a moment, a traumatic moment in your childhood that, in my opinion, affected you know, was a catalyst to your emotional growth. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a, in a great family. I tell people all the time, you know, I didn't come from a broken home. My parents uh, just celebrated 54 years being married. Uh, That's well. So, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, so I, I had every advantage in life, every privilege. And my parents, let me tell you about my parents, man. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a sports writer. But he was the first sports writer in this part of Texas to put black athletes on the front page of a sports page. 1971, wow. first time it ever happened. And when my dad put Joe Washington Jr. on the cover of a sports page down here in Port Arthur, well, people, there's some people that lost their minds. They broke his windows out. They slid his tires. They wow. sent him a bunch of hate mail. But growing up, when, my, when I was old enough to read and comprehend, man, my dad went up in the attic one day. And he yeah. comes down with this box of hate mail and he makes wow. me read every one of those letters. Well, he makes me read. He wants, he said, he said, Damon, I want you to see what it looks like to take a stand and do the right thing. Cause he said, sometimes taking a stand and doing the right thing means you're going to have to stand alone. But he right. said, it's always okay to stand alone as long as you stand on the right side of history. Right. And so I had this tremendous influence from it. And I, look, man, 25 years later, when I got sent to a max security prison, that was the lesson I was going to need most. Right. Mm. So, Great influence for my family. I had some difficulties in life, and everybody has difficulties. Mine was, you know, when I was nine, I was molested by a female babysitter. And I tell mm -hmm. people all the time, when this molestation happened, you know, it wasn't one of those molestation things where it happens where it's like, oh, my God, this, this, this broke me. Like, it, it does mm -hmm. in so many people that molestation happens. What it did to me is it opened up my world to a lot of other, other adult behaviors. And when mm -hmm. I got on the other side, I, I, I tell people it's like a door. I got let in on the other side of a door long before I was supposed to ever be on the other side of that door. Right. And on the, once you get on the other side, though, there's all these other doors, but there's no locks on those doors. Those mm. doors are wide open. You just walk in. Now you're drinking, you're doing drugs, you know. So I got into substance abuse at a young age. I was 10. I started drinking. When I was 12, I started smoking pot. Had a lot of character issues. But, brother, I could throw a football, man. And this is Texas. Yeah. Texas high school yeah. football is a big deal. Very competitive. Man. Oh, it's like a religion down here, man. So, uh, and I was the man. I was a three-year starting quarterback for a 5A school and scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. And by the time I was 20, I was a starting quarterback for a Division One college football team. And 
Man, I thought I had arrived. My head was this big. You know, I was yeah. in the early stages of my disease of addiction, but I didn't know it then, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talk about college and I can't help but go to a chapter in your book, chapter six, The Fork in the Road. And this is a part that kind of resonated with me. And I, when I, you know, I wanted to reach out and talk to you more about it. Being a professional athlete, I know what it means to feel like you're not part of something. Right. I had gone through I had tore both of my packs. I was out for two consecutive seasons and I was I was prescribed a lot of medications. And with my family history, you know, addiction was very close, very, um, very close to me. I could I could see it. And I went through a tough time with dealing with prescription pills. And it wasn't until one day I woke up and was like, this is not my life. So when I read the the story of of you, you know, dealing with a separated shoulder when you finally had a chance to start and, and dealing with an Achilles um, injury, you know, on top of everything you just laid out in terms of that that early childhood traumatic experience and going through doors of, of adult life that you probably shouldn't have been privy to at such a young age. You know, how did that have an effect on you? Did it did it double down and say, hey, these doors that are opening that I'm, I'm not available for? Did it just did you double down? And it's like, OK, I have to. Was that the moment where you realized your life was taking a turn for a side that you weren't expected and you weren't ready for? Yeah, well, you asked a very key key part of that question. The, the moment I realized, I don't I don't think I realized it at the time. What happened to right. me when I got injured in college football and I never played college football again, my identity was wrapped up in being a college football player. You know, and mm -hmm. everything in my life was about being that athlete is I'm sure that you can absolutely relate to because right. and you got to take it to the top, to the highest level. But when mm -hmm. we wrap our identities up into something external, something that's not really ours, because the identity has to come from within, not from without. But right. the, the problem is, is that, you know, from a really young age, I didn't I didn't have the right value system in relationships because I was introduced to sexual behavior at nine years old, every relationship I had was around mm -hmm. sex at, at that age and nothing of meaning of value. I didn't understand relationships. The, the fact that a relationship is a two way street and mm -hmm. I was an athlete, I, I was used to getting what I wanted too. So now my identity of being an athlete and, and everything that I've, the lane that I've been in is shut down and closed on me. And to deal with that, I didn't deal with that, like dealing with life on life's terms. I just put in chemicals to change the way right. I felt because if I right. put in the chemicals, I felt better instantly about life. But you know, what goes up comes down. And every time I put those chemicals in, I still came down, but I got to the point where I didn't want to come down anymore. So I just kept putting in more and more. Right. And I, and I feel like, and I'm no expert in this field at all, but I feel like you just didn't have the language for it. You didn't know what, what the hell was happening to you. And let me go back for just a, a, a touch. What was the conversation like? Again, I'm going off of some quotes that I read from the book. You you mentioned that you hit the parent lottery, right? And you've and I, I read the story about you be, your family visiting you every weekend, giving you literature uh, when you were uh, in prison and incarcerated. Great support system. At what point in your early childhood, when after you were molested and you brought it to the forefront, like how did that affect things? And what was that conversation like in terms of you telling your parents and like, hey, this is how I'm going to cope with it? From here on out, you know, I, I think that my, my first of all, my parents did everything they could. Uh, they sent me to talk yeah. to the family counselor. They sent me to talk to the family mm -hmm. priest. We prayed about it a lot. My mom's a very devout Christian woman, so we yeah. prayed a lot. Um, 
And look, I mean, for me, for the way I dealt with it, I mean, I, I was, you know, I let the, I told them everything was okay and everything would be fine. And then mm -hmm. I was, I was past it, but you know, inside the way I dealt with life is I, you know, I put in chemicals to change the way I felt. So they didn't right. really understand, you know, right. I didn't let them understand what was going on in my life at the time. Um, partly because I don't think I've really truly understood. I didn't understand the effects of that till I got later in life and understood that, mm -hmm. Hey man, all my relationships have been based around, you know, getting what I want, not being receptive to the other person in the relationship. So it definitely had an effect, but I don't think my parents did the best they could with the knowledge that was put in front of them. I was very uh, deceitful about right. how I was handling. So there was, life. there was no resentment towards your family. Cause like you say, you, they were only privy to what you allowed them to, to know. That's so, a great okay. way to put it. Yeah. They're only yeah. privy to what I allowed them to know. And it's yeah. not, not much. I mean, cause and what I learned too about people that are in, their addiction and you talked about your father being mm -hmm. uh, a recovering addict addiction mm -hmm. is a very selfish thing it's a very selfish very very self-serving thing we we want what we want when we want it and that's what right. addicts do we it's right. all about us and my life as an addict has always been about me it wasn't until i got into a program recovery when i was in prison that i learned how to mm -hmm. to live for others and not just myself so let's, let's go back let's go to that that first encounter in in county jail and I know I'm skipping a bit, but I, I just have to get this out because I can talk to you for hours, man. Um, Mr. Jackson is his name. You mm -hmm. he, And uh, I, I saw an interview you did and you mentioned his real name, Mr. He was a, a black Muslim man named Muhammad. Muhammad. And yeah. Muhammad. And the advice that he gave you, can you can you let the listeners know the advice he gave you in terms of preparing yourself for prison and what to expect? So, yeah, I was in county jail the summer of 2009, and I've been sentenced to life in prison, but I don't know anything about prison. I mean, I, look, I'm mm -hmm. a white middle class guy in America. I don't know anybody's been to prison before. So I get mm -hmm. back to my pod, Dallas County Jail, and my mom and my dad have made me promise that I won't get to one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs, right. because I'm scared because I'm the minority in there. In fact, my mom tells me, no gangs, no tattoos. She said, right. you come back as the man we raised or don't come yeah. back at all. So I'm like, man, mm. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I'm running around Dallas County Jail asking all these guys that have been to the joint, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? And every guy I talked to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they all mm. said the same thing. you got to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. Mm. But there was this one man, Muhammad, man, a guy called mm. Mr. Jackson. I just And I just mm. called him Mr. Jackson for the sake of telling the story. Right. Um, but Muhammad, he tells me that, Prison's all about race. He said, race is the most overriding factor you're going to see inside this place because every inmate in there wants it to be about race. He said, you know, when I walk in the door, the white gang's got the first dibs on me. If I wanted to be independent from them, I've got to fight all the white gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the White Knights, the Woods. And he said, then if you survive the white gangs, the black gangs are coming. The Crips, the Bloods, oh my the Gangster Disciples, the Mandingo Warriors. He said, they're going to be happy to tee off on an independent white guy that won't get with his own kind, his own race. Oh my God. But he tells me, he said, you don't have to win all your fights, mm -hmm. but you do have to fight all your fights. One of the best lessons I've ever learned in life. That tells you that, you know, some days you're going to win and some days you're going to lose, man. Life's not well, about you, winning everything. If I can interject for one second, you said that was the best advice you had ever received. Now, you come from a very stable household. You've met, I'm sure, a lot of great, up until that point, a career criminal had given you the best advice in life. Is that what I'm hearing? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> The, one of the best lessons of, in fact, the story I'm about to tell next is like, this is a fork in the road moment. I tell people all the time that 
God, whatever you call God, because everybody can mm -hmm. believe in, in their own version of God. I'm not one of those people who's going to tell you what to believe in. So, right. but I think in my life, God, God never has reached down his hand, put his hand on my head and said, hey, Damon, you're healed. Mm -hmm. You know what God has done in my life, brother? He's put people in my life. And these people yeah. that he put in my life come in different shapes and sizes. But when I was a younger person, they came in the form of my parents. They came in teachers. They were coaches. They were people in the community I grew up in. But when right. I got older in life and I get on this, this road of life, they came in different. I mean, the, the most important man he puts on the journey in my life is a black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail that's been from the streets of Dallas, mm. man. This is this is dude, this guy and me. have We don't even come from the same part of America, yeah. man. Right. We don't look right. the same. We don't believe right. the same stuff. I'm a I'm a white Catholic guy from a little town called Port Arthur. <laughs> but this man is so different than me. Share with me mm. one of the most important and transformational messages in my life. And I tell people all the time, man. If you shut yourself off to people because of their background, their differences, mm -hmm. their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, I mean, if you close yourself off to people because of their differences, you're going to miss some of the most important lessons and some of the best friendships in this life. Because Mr. Jackson told me, Muhammad told me that day, he told me the story of the coffee bean. He said, if we yeah. look at prison as a giant pot of blown water, he said, you got three choices. He said, you can be like the carrot that turns mm -hmm. soft and sad and weak in a pot of blown water. You can be like the egg, which turns hard and mad at me, and the inside of the egg becomes hard, like a hard-boiled egg. Or you can be like that coffee bean, because a coffee bean, coffee bean changes the pot of boiling water to a pot of coffee. Right. It's the only thing, he said, that will change the water. Everything else is changed by the water. So, yeah, one of the most important, most pivotal lessons I've ever learned in life came from a guy that was, you know, a career criminal in Dallas County Jail. And, and it's like, that's like my program recovery, man. Mm. I'm, in, I'm in AA. I'm in a 12-step program recovery called AA. What, yeah. what makes the, the, the other men that are sponsors in, in AA, the other men and women that sponsor people in AA, their, their most valuable asset is the thing they're the most ashamed of. The thing that, where they failed the greatest mm -hmm. becomes mm -hmm. their, their best asset in this wow. world to help other people out. Now, how difficult was that to maintain that analogy of not becoming the soggy carrot or not becoming this hard shell of a of a person to to not be able to receive love or give love how was that i know that to me that had to be the hardest conflict every day you woke up is okay i want to be a coffee bean just how do i do that in a an environment that you're not used to that are you're surrounded by career criminals and god knows the the what goes on in prison and i heard and through the book i heard you talk about Body language, reading body language became you had to be become a savant with reading body language because no one hugged, no one talked. You just had to know. And what was that moment like for you just to walk into a, a situation where that was you constantly wanted you, you, the constant threat of someone forced you not to be the coffee bean? How did you deal with that mentally? Yeah. And the answer to the question is, is that it's a one day at a time deal. And mm -hmm. the truth is, is that. I'm not a coffee bean every day. I wasn't a coffee bean every single day that I woke up inside that prison. I had to choose to be a mm -hmm. coffee because you're going to have days where you are the carrot. That's being sad. That's a natural human emotion to be sad. We're all going to be the carrot sometime. That's okay. It's okay to be the carrot. Right. We just can't get stuck there, you know? Right. And then there's going to be the days that, that beat us down and make us hard and mad and mean and angry. These are the egg days. And if Man, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I got way more egg days than carrot days under my belt. <laughs> right. That's okay. You're going to be the egg sometimes. Just don't get stuck right. there, man. 
And that's what happens in life. People get stuck in these carrot and egg because you've got that third choice to be that coffee bean. And look, man, in prison, prison was the biggest pot of boiling water there is. I meet people all the time and they tell me their biggest fear in life is to go to prison. There's a reason why, because prison is a dangerous place. I tell people all the time, there's a big difference between fear and danger. Fear, Mm. in my opinion, fears aren't real. That's an emotion. That's something you feel about the situation you're in. Mm. That's a feeling. Danger is real. You have to respect danger. That's a that's a very real thing. So prison is a very dangerous place. And inside that prison, most people become broken spiritually, emotionally, and, and physically. The physical part is how they're going to try to break you down right when you first get there. And the first couple of months was a living hell. But remember, Muhammad told me, you're going to get in a lot of fights. Don't even worry about winning these fights. No, no, he right. said, no one keeps track of your wins and losses in there. Hmm. What they're watching for is to see if you're not going to get back up one day, to see if you're not going to defend yourself one day. That's what they're hoping for. Don't right. give them so, that. Right. So this leads me to my next point. So why in the hell out of this, this small statured white guy, you walk into prison and you decide you want to go play basketball and it's all about race. It's all yep. about race, right? Prison is all about race. You've already stated that. There's a moment in the book where, and I don't want to give too much to the book. I want people to go out and, and, and read it. But there's a moment that I wanted to ask you. So you wake up, you have this plan. You want to go play basketball and mm-hmm. intermingle with the, the, the blacks, the mm-hmm. black inmates. And you're the only white guy to do it. And can you tell the audience the story of, of how that came about? Because I read they were, they were freaking torturing you. Oh, man. It, you know, so, and it was the worst experience. That, but you chose to put yourself in that position. But right. My question to you is, OK, what was the thought process behind that? And what was the significance of it? Yeah. So it's, it's like six weeks into prison, man. And Jackson told me, Bahamut Jackson, they're interchangeable mm-hmm. with name. So mm-hmm. but he tells me the, the first that you got to fight the white gangs off. And after that, it'll be the black gangs. And then. So and he's right. It, it took two weeks of constant fighting with the white gangs and they tap out. Now the black gangs have got the go-ahead. They got the green light, smash this fool, get him to go with his own race. Black gangs are happy to do that. You mean we get to tee off with this white guy that no one's going to stop us from beating him? And they do. And, and they're, they're trying to break me. And sometimes I'm getting jumped. Six weeks into prison, man, I get up on a Monday morning, and I'm sick and tired of living in fear, man. Either right. I'm going to figure something out or I'm going to check out, kill myself, right. one of the two. I can't keep living like this. We're not made to live in fear, man. Human beings aren't made to be broken like that, and they're breaking me. But the only thing I haven't done to try to earn respect at six weeks in the prison is I haven't used my athletic ability. And I'm an athlete, man. I've always been an elite athlete. And I haven't been able to use my athletic ability because I've been scared. I've been living in fear. But I've been going up to the rec yard watching these guys play basketball. Everything on the rec yard is segregated by race. The sand volleyball court, whites and Hispanics only. No blacks allowed on the sand volleyball court. Handball wall. Everybody can play. All the races get to play handball. But if you want to play partners and double up with somebody in prison on a life sentence building, your partner has to be the same skin color as you. You can't mix the races on the handball. Weight stack, same thing. And just like you see in the prison movies, everybody wants to push that iron. And all the races can lift weights. But you want someone to spot you and a partner to work out with you, same skin color, man. Everything's about Mm -hmm. that skin. So I, it was a Monday morning, six weeks into prison. I'm like, you know what? I, I, I give myself the courage in that, in that cell before they roll the doors, and I'm, I shoot out to the rec yard. I head straight to the basketball court. No white guys are allowed in the basketball court. That's the brothers, man. They run the basketball court. But, but man, I grew up being the only white guy in the basketball court before. I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, man. 
I grew up around blacks all my life in a predominantly black mm -hmm. town. I've been around these people before, but they're not going to let me in their games just because I grew up around blacks. I mm -hmm. can't be on that court. But I've been watching these guys play for a couple of weeks, and I found a flaw, a flaw that I'm mm -hmm. going to exploit that Monday morning. After every game they play, they're going to shoot for teams. And shoot for teams means the first two guys to make a free throw get to be the captains. That's how they keep people rotating in. Man, the winning team doesn't stay on the court. They're going to shoot for teams. So I'm watching this game. It's a really lopsided game. I get on the side of the court. I know the game is going to end on. And, man, as soon as the basketball goes to that basket for that last shot, man, I went and lunged and grabbed that basketball and lunged wow. like a fumble drill in football. Man, I got the ball wrapped up. That could have been that? suicide. That could have been suicide. It was, it was, it was suicidal. Here, and here's what's up, man. I mean, the entire court sucks up around me. Just a sea of angry black faces. And, man, they're like, man, give us our ball back, white boy. You lost your mind. I'm like, man. Dude, my voice is squeaking in the crowd. Man, I'm shooting my shot. I'm going to shoot my shot. I'm bouncing around. They're like, man, they're like, dude, we're going to kill you, man. You lost your – dude, I'm on an island, brother. I mean, I've already, right. I've already told the white gangs just by my, my mm -hmm. fighting back, I don't need your help. They're over there in the corner, man, watching what's going on, going, man, kill him, kill him. You know, they want at this point, they want me dead. Oh my but, God. man, the biggest dude out there, man, this blood from Houston comes up. J-Blood, man. Mm -hmm. He gets up in my face, and, and man, I think he's gonna knock me out, but he's not getting this damn ball. And I'm wrapped this ball up. He gets up on my face, and Jay Blood says, Man, he says, You know what, white boy? He said, Get up on the line and shoot your shot. He says, Boy, I hope you make this basket. But man, that basketball court parted, that free throw line appeared. Man, that free throw line looked like the equator was so big, man. I'm looking at this line. <laughs> that that goal right, right. away, man. This is a free throw, man. And I, I'm psyched out already, but. And then this is what's up. The reason why I ended up on that court that Monday morning is because I'm already fighting these guys all the time. And, and mm -hmm. if I'm going to have to keep fighting these guys, then I want to do it playing some sports. You know, sports is the great equalizer in life, especially mm -hmm. in American life. Sports can bring people together like nothing else can, man. It's one yeah. of the reasons why I wrote the book, The Locker Room, man, because mm -hmm. sports has the ability to bring people together like nothing else. Friday nights in the South, man. You'll see people oh. in the stands of a football game. They're hugging and slapping and giving high fives to people. They're not doing that anywhere else in the community and no. society the other six days of the week, not even at church. We self-segregate our churches. Mm -hmm. But in the stands of a football game on a Friday night, anywhere in the South, you'll see people of all races, of all ethnicities, getting together and joining in to root for their team. Sports mm -hmm. has power. So I'm on the basketball court that morning hoping I can get some of that power and shine the channel to me. But I'm one free throw away from either getting in this game or being mm -hmm. killed, but I'm, you yeah. know what? My back is against the wall. I'm like, I'm, you know, I got to figure something out because I can't just keep fighting every day like this. So when I get up on that free throw line, I shoot my shot. I make my shot. So I step back. I'm a captain. Jay Boyd gets up. He makes his shot. He's a captain. So we start, we start picking our squads, man. So I pick my four guys. He picks his four guys. We got <laughs> a little five on five. Wrong, man. It's not on one, man. My old teammates don't want me out. <laughs> this is basketball on the life sentence building of a maximum security level five. Wow. Man. There's no place, wow. no place harder to play basketball. But man, I survived that first yeah. day. Got a yeah. black eye and a busted lip, but I survived. So I get up the next morning. I look in the mirror, man, in my cell. I'm like, okay, I look like I've been hit by a truck. But that dude doesn't look like he lives in fear. That dude got down. Right. I'm going out there to Tuesday right. morning. I walk out on that court, man. These guys are laughing at me. Hey, white boy, we thought you had enough. Mm. I say, hey, man, I thought you boys went basketball. What's up? Mm. Brother, hey, man, if I was looking for some <laughs> basketball, they gave me everything I was looking for. I got picked, I got picked first. Every, I didn't have to worry about getting picked. I was picked first, and I'm not first pick caliber. I'm like eighth or ninth, man. I'm not that good at basketball. 
But these dudes made it. They say you were going to make sure you're on this court every game. You want to play some basketball, you're in every game. Right. And take this punishment. Take this punishment, man. And, but and I'm giving it back wherever I can. And, and in basketball, man, there's no there's no referee. There's no mm -hmm. in a prison basketball game. man. There's no referee. There's no guard in the mm -hmm. tower. It's going to save you. There's mm -hmm. no fouls. You can punch, kick, scratch, bite, pull hair. But you know what I figured out this week? Two things. I learned two things about adversity that week on the basketball court. Adversity is never as bad as I think it's going to be. And I'm mm -hmm. always capable of way more than I think I am. And the problem is that I've had in life, and maybe you've had this too, is I've let overthinking get in the way of overcoming so many times in life. I've thought myself out of so many different things in life, but I just kept showing up, man. And it's that lesson I tell people all the time, man. You have to show up and you have to put in the work. And when you do that, good things can happen. And six days into this basketball game, and it's on a Saturday, these dudes circled up around me like they did six days before, but the body language is different. Dudes are dapping me up, man. Mm -hmm. Hey, West, what's up? And I heard, when I heard that, West, I heard my last name. I, they weren't calling me white boy anymore. You know, it's extremely derogatory to call anybody by the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. And these men that day started calling me by my name. So it, something had shifted. Something had I got my name back, man. It's And as a black man in America, I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Got my name yeah. back. And Jay Bud, Jay Bud comes up. He does all the talking like he did six days before. He said, "West, he said you pulled something off out here. We just honestly, we've never seen a white boy pull this off before. You took because you took everything we had. You gave it back when you could, but you never once got racial with us, man. You mm -hmm. never got racial with us, man. Mm -hmm. So he said, you've earned it, man. You don't have to worry about the blacks the rest of the time you're in prison. I'm gonna tell you something, man. The real story is not about the scared white boy that went out there and got down and got his respect that week. That's on mm -hmm. the surface, man. We see that. The real story." was about those black men on that court let me into their world. Because until then, I had not seen this imaginary fable of this coffee bean in play, man. All I have is this, this allegory that Mr. Jackson tells me about being a coffee bean. But that week on the basketball court, I saw the coffee bean. Because those men, those men, yeah. some of them had 20 years of a bad belief system, brother. Right. That a guy that looks like me doesn't belong in their world. But in six days, right. they made a change. In six days, they became coffee beans. We made coffee that week on the rec yard. Mm, that's it, was just, it was just in time, man, because I needed to see it. I was becoming the egg on the inside, man. I was I didn't want to be an mm. egg. I didn't know how to be a coffee bean, though. One of the yeah. last conversations I had with Jackson in county jail, I asked him, I said, Man, what am I gonna find more of when I get to prison? And he said, Eggs, West, eggs. He said the egg yeah. is a natural evolution of any human being inside of any difficult situation. And the situation right. you're going is one of the most difficult there is. And he said, You are gonna probably become the egg too. Wow. Uh, that That's a powerful story, man. And uh, when I read it, I was just moved by it that you're right. That was a decision you had to make. I think that was the changing point, in my opinion, for your psyche to deal with this place, this dangerous place that you perfectly laid out. It's the difference between fear and dangerous. You were living yeah. in a dangerous environment every single day. But let me go back for a second to to catch people up on how you we, we got to this place, how you was handed down this life sentence. And let's go back to, you know, uh, after college, I read that you spent some time here in DC. I'm in Washington, DC. You spent some time here uh, working on the Hill. You were training to be a stockbroker. You clearly was a highly intelligent and functional addict at the time. Sure. When, when did you know, or when did it become, here's my thing. Because of my experience, we talked offline about my father dealing with addiction. I knew many other family members who dealt with it and family friends who dealt with it. So it was very real to me how, 
as I got older, I realized this wasn't a choice. This was a chemical imbalance that when 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 you're addicted, you don't want anything else. Nothing else matters. Your family, your mother, your daughter, your children, nothing else matters. And for a long time, I resented my father for it until I educated myself and realized, hell, he's the best father in the world. This guy cares. He's loving. He's all these different things that I never experienced that he had tied up with his addiction. For you, when the crossroads happened for you, did you have to hit rock bottom? I mean, what what type of like how does a person get to a point where you get a life sentence for property, you know, uh, uh, you know, property crimes? I don't understand. I, I didn't. I never figured that out. How does one? get a life sentence based on crop, pop, property crimes and it's not violent crimes. Yeah, so I, I tell people all the time that in, in America, we, we sentence people for one of two different reasons. Either we're scared of someone or we're mad at someone. And they were mad at me. The jury was really mad at me. Um, Man, that's a great, can I, say, can, can I stop you for a second? That is a, a hell of a statement you just made. Either they're afraid of you. And what was the other thing you said? Or, Either they're Or they're mad at you. Or they're mad at you. Ooh. Yeah. That to me sounds like the difference between the different Americas we all live in. Black America, brown America, white America, poor America, rich America. That to me sounds like the different just criminal justice systems for. You hit you know, the nail on the head. There's way, dude. I, and I'm, let me tell you this. I can talk about it from the, the side of living inside of a maximum security. I, I was in there for seven years and three months before I made parole. I've been out for six and a half years. But in that six and a half years that I've been out, I went back to school. I got a master's in criminal justice. Today, yeah. I'm a professor at the University of Houston downtown. Get mm. this. I teach a class called Prisons in America. I'm the only professor mm. in America in the world that teaches a prisons class that lived in a prison. So, I mean, wow. I, t I, give it, I give it to the students from a whole different perspective. The first day of my class, you come into Damon, Professor West class, this is the first thing you're going to hear. Forget about what you think you know about the many criminal justice systems in America, because there's more yeah. than one. There's a white one. There's a brown one. There's a black one. There's a rich one. There's a poor one. There's one for cops. They've got their own system set up in America. Mm -hmm. Everybody, depending on what you look like and where you fit into the America, is the kind yeah. of justice you can expect to receive if you get caught up in the many different criminal justice systems in this country, because they are not equal and they're not all just one. And if you mm -hmm. think they are, you're not living in reality because there are yeah. so many different criminal justice systems because it does. It depends on your race. It I'm not saying that's the only factor, right? Right. but that is a factor. There are because more than one criminal justice systems. You're right. And if I could interject for one second, sure. for those people that's going to watch this and hear you speak, if I will, there's going to be a different community of people that say, you know what, uh, because this this white guy why is his story so unique because he's a white guy that has such privileged opportunities and and so forth like this doesn't happen to black people you know but no one can take away what the hell you had to do listen you had an addiction i'm not one of those people let's say that what would you say to those people that says you know what um this is only a story because he's a white man and he's overcome he's got all these other opportunities out here that normal you know black and brown people of poor people wouldn't be afforded. Like, what would you say to those people as it pertains to your personal situation? So I would say that, look, race 
plays a factor in all this, right? Why did I make parole after seven years and three months? Was it because I became this model inmate and I had adjusted to the institution so well? Some of it. Some of it's also because I'm a white middle-class guy in America. Being a white middle-class guy in America means that uh, I had a support system around me unlike any other. I mean, it, not in, unlike any other, but it means that I'm more likely to have gone to better schools, to have a two-parent family, to have opportunities in life that not everybody has. And it means that on the outside, that people may take my story a little differently than they would someone that was Damon West as a black person in America. Because if you hear Damon West and you hear the former college athlete went to prison, you may just think from my name that I'm a black man, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is this, that, that, some when I was walking out of prison, we're skipping around, but I'm, this is an important yeah. thing to say right here. When I'm getting ready to leave prison, one of my favorite cellmates, man, this black Muslim guy from Dallas, another black Muslim guy from Dallas, this guy's name is Sabor. Sabor is stopping me on the way out the door from prison. And, and he says, hey, look, he said, I, I got to ask you something. He said, when you get out of here, are you going to talk about the stuff you saw in here, the stuff we talked about? Now, now what Sabor wants to know is, he could, am I going to talk about the stuff when we were cellmates on 7 Building 45 Cell? When I would learn from my brother Sabor about things like disparities in the system, social justice, about racism in America, he wants to know, am I going to talk about that stuff out there in the free world where everybody can hear that conversation? And I told Sabor, man, I was like, Sabor, man, give me some time. Let me get on my feet. Yeah. When I get on my feet, you know I will. Yeah. And man, what Sabor said to me became a call to action in my life because his words hit me right between the eyes when he said, he said, he said, good. West, good. He said, sometimes they lock up the right guy. Mm. Sometimes they lock wow. up the right guy. Wow. And what he means by that is that this Damon West that has been able to be dipped in the, the toxic waters of prison for a little while is that right guy. Because I'm in a, look at me, I'm in a body. God has given me this, this ability to tell this story. He's given me a way to articulate what I've seen and heard through words and through writing that, and people will listen to me. I've gained access just simply by the, the virtue of how I was born, a white man, middle-class guy in America with the ability to transcend both worlds. And right. what I learned is that, right. that racism, racism is about the imbalance of power. Racism means one race is going to have more power over the other races. That race that's in power, too, they can then go write laws to affect how the other races live. The kind of schools they go, the kind of America they grow up right. in. And in America, right. white people have that kind of power. That's what racism is. That's why it's so difficult for a white person in America to ever tell you they've experienced racism. Racism. When a white yeah. friend tells me, hey, Damon, that person of color over there was being racist and saying something racist. Well, I'll help my friend out because definitions are important. Words matter. What yeah. my white friend is talking about is not racism. What my white friend mm -hmm. is talking about is prejudice. Prejudice. Yeah. Prejudice means to prejudge. That's the root word of prejudice. And, and white people can feel prejudice. Everybody can feel prejudice. Mm -hmm. And white Everyone. people can feel and do feel prejudice from other races, including blacks. But yeah. white people rarely ever get to feel racism because racism has power attached to it, man. Mm -hmm. If a black person is prejudiced towards a white person, there's no power attached to that. They can't lose their job. They can't be affected by in society some way because of that. That is racism. So I say it to tell you this, that it's difficult for a white person to experience racism, but not impossible. Because as Sabor is saying, I have. 
I lived in a world for seven years and three months where being white was no longer the advantage. Where the color of my skin meant that I couldn't sit on a certain row of benches in the day room. Or I got my face kicked in the rec yard simply because of the way I was born, the melanin in my skin. So for seven years and three months, I got to live in this world where I got to experience racism. So I got to see it firsthand. And now I can translate it and go out and tell the story. And I could tell people in America, I can have this conversation. I can operate a little bit more freely out there than most Mm -hmm. white people can. Because in my story, you know, I fought Crips. I fought Bloods. I fought Nazis. I fought skinheads for the Mm -hmm. right to tell this story. So I've earned my position. And I come out and tell people this. You want to fix the problem of racism, we got to start having uncomfortable conversations about racism. And what that's going to require is two things, humility and grace. Now, humility is going to have to come from white people, people that look like me. People that Mm -hmm. look like me are going to have to come and say, hey, I'm willing to listen to learn to what you have to say. They're going to become the black and brown people and say, hey, man, I'm willing to listen to learn to what Mm -hmm. you have to tell me about racism in America. That's right. going to require a ton of, ton of humility from white people. But but I do see white people that are humble enough to do that. It's not like yeah, yeah. these aren't mm-hmm. unicorns. They're, they're all out there. Yeah. But white people have to do that. Now, black people, people that look like you, you're, mm-hmm. black people are going to have to, to – to, when these white people come willing to listen to learn, black mm-hmm. people are going to have to be willing to teach with no grace. Doubt. No and doubt. Man, whoo, grace and I hard, think you, 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 you hit it on the head because it, I think this is uh, the fear that most – and I shouldn't say most that some white people fear of white supremacy moving to black supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the, 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 the conversation no one really dives deep on. If there's a fair equal opportunity, there's this fear that black people will somehow prop themselves up off of the, 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 you know, the anguish and, and, you know, the history that we've had with white America. So I, I think that's the that's the underlining uh, issue that I think is the biggest fear between the different rate, black and white, and this whole discussion uh, in its entirety. But I, I really appreciate those those words, man. It, it, you are you are a walking symbol for those people that are free people outside of prison and your experience that you had to deal with being not the majority when you're incarcerated. So that, that, that was a powerful statement, man. And what you're saying, and what you're saying there is, is, is true. It's no fun when the rabbit's got the gun, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's no fun when the rabbit gets the gun, you look at Bugs Bunny and all that. Right. So it's like, (laughs) but that's real life, you know, because, and and I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's, there are some white people out there that are afraid, man, Mm -hmm. you know, what if, what if these oppressed people, become bigger oppressors than we were because they've got the power now. But the thing about it is, is that when white people come willing to listen and learn with humility and black people can be willing to teach with grace. And, and what I was saying a while ago is grace is hard because grace is going to cost the person who gives it more than it costs the person who receives it. Grace is difficult because Mm -hmm. grace is giving you something you don't necessarily deserve. And for a black person to have to teach white people about this racism stuff, that requires grace because now no you've got, man, I talk to black people all the time and say, man, Damon, I'm just tired. I'm done. I, I don't have, I, no. I don't have the energy to go teach a bunch of white people about racism when I've got to try to teach my kids how to live in this world where they don't get killed when they get pulled over, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. So there's a lot of stuff. Grace is hard, man. But here's what I yeah. say. When white people are willing to listen to learn with humility and black people are, are willing to teach with grace, 
then we come together and we have these conversations where we can get to the other side of, of racism right. and, and the cancel culture because the cancel culture right. has gone too far. White people, people tell me this that are white. They say, look, Damon, you know, two reasons why I can't get involved in a conversation about what race. One is they don't really know what racism is. It's very difficult, mm -hmm. very high bar to, to overcome right. if you don't know the topic, you know. But right. the other reason is they're scared to death to talk about racism because yeah. of the cancel culture, the cancel culture. Yeah. And if yeah. and that's real, and if you don't have conversations, you can't fix the problem. We have to communicate. Yeah, communication is so important because when we communicate, we feel like we've been heard. And when mm -hmm. I feel like I've been heard, now I feel like I'm on the same team. See, we're we're back to sports now. Right. And if I feel like I'm on the same team as you, I'll do things that teammates do. I'll sacrifice. I'll work harder. I got your back. You got mine. That's mm -hmm. why I like locker rooms are so important. I just wrote a book called The Locker Room. I keep coming yeah. back to this. Because America doesn't have a locker room right now, man. We don't have a <laughs> no. place where everybody can go to. But you played sports. You know that a locker room, a team that wins championships, they have this magical place called a locker room. And in that locker room, mm -hmm. your success is my success. You know, right. a mistake doesn't make you a mistake in this locker room. There's a way to become whole in this locker room. And your mm -hmm. goals are my goals. And everyone has a voice. And hard conversations can be endured in this magical place called a locker room. But we don't yeah. have that in America. But I do think... I do think sports is going to get there first in America because sports yeah. has always gotten there first. Before yeah. there was Martin Luther King Jr., there was Jackie Robinson. Before yeah. we integrated lunch counters in this country, well, we integrated a locker room. Muhammad Ali. I keep Muhammad it. Ali. I keep it. He's a fighter, man. A, fight, a fighter. A fight, mm -hmm. And that's the thing, man. Sports has always taught us the way, just like we were talking about, man. Be, be people on Friday nights in the South, they, they're in the yeah. stands of these games. They're hugging each Hugging each other, man. People that don't yeah. want to hug each other and touch each other anywhere in public. <laughs> right. The other six days, right. not even at church, brother. We self-segregate. <laughs> right. But right. back to what I want to jump back because we jumped really far ahead. It was great. I yeah. love this conversation. Not a lot, you know what? Not a lot of white guys are going to say the stuff I say. They're just not mm -hmm. because I don't think a lot of white guys have the same currency that I have to talk about this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, no, right. But yeah. Sabor's words ring true to me. Sometimes they lock up the right guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why God, what I call God, let me out in the first place is to go out there and try to change this world, try to be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem, try to fix the imbalance of power that is racism. So that's one of the reasons why I have to talk about it. But going back to your dad, you, you talked about addiction. Mm -hmm. Tell you what I tell people all the time. Addicts are not necessarily bad people. They're sick. Yeah, people. I don't think that they're sick. Right. Yeah, they're sick people that do bad things. I was a sick mm -hmm. person that did really bad things when I was in my addiction. But when now that you see me outside of my addiction, I'm capable mm -hmm. of doing all kinds of good stuff as long as I stay sober and I have a program recovery. I also think that all addicts must have a program recovery. And, and this mm -hmm. place that I went to, this place called prison, you know, 80% of the people in there have substance abuse issues. But mm -hmm. of all the variables that people experience in prison, that was the... so. When I was in prison, I was a sociology major in college. When yeah. I graduated in 99, the green mm -hmm. sociology. When I got to prison in 2009, I'm walking around this world. It's like a giant Petri dish that I live in. I mean, it's like waking up in a giant sociological experiment every day because you're right. looking at a society of what yes. happens when you take the brakes off and you put, you know, you, you can have anything run the society. And, and like literally the glue that holds prison together is the threat of violence. This is a world that would live if we didn't have wow. laws out here to govern us. You would live like a prison where the threat of violence is what holds us all together. Mm. In America, you know, where we live in the world, the threat of violence doesn't hold anybody together. You have keyboard warriors, people that hide behind social media. And they say <laughs> right. all this crazy stuff. 
Dude, in the real world, you wouldn't say the stuff people say on social media. Someone would slap you in the face the minute you said something like that. I mean, right. In prison, that's what happens. You get slapped in the face. Mm. But what I saw in prison, I saw that there were five variables that really kind of determine whether or not has, someone has a chance to have a negative interaction with the various criminal justice systems in this country. Mm. First one is poverty. The next one is lack of education. The next mm. one is lack of a family unit. Because mm -hmm. the family unit in America, in some parts for different races and cultures, is, is dead and dying. It's on life support. Right. The fourth one was race. And the last mm -hmm. one is substance abuse. Now, I'm an outlier for four of these five things. Poverty, mm -hmm. not me. Lack of education, mm -hmm. no, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, lack of family, not me. Race, mm -hmm. I'm white guy, man. But mm -hmm. substance abuse, that was the rail that I touched. And that's the one that 80% of the people locked up have substance abuse issues. And... What I learned is that if you don't have a program recovery to deal with those substance abuse issues, then you're going to keep going back and doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, the very different definition of insanity. So in my right. life today, I'm armed with this coffee bean message that Muhammad gives me, but I'm also armed with a program recovery, which is the most do, important thing in my life. God, do you ever feel like it's too much, like you can't bear this burden? Or do you feel like this is a debt that you owe to the years you were sick? And do you ever feel like, man, I just, I can't do it. Do you ever have those, those that moment? Because I feel that like this is a lot to bear for one individual. Have you, and the other part of that question, have you met other people that were the right person to lock up in your words that are on this crusade that you can actually team up with? Because I, I feel like one man to take on this journey is a lot. And I feel like you are the person that can do it with your energy and your, your your experience and everything you've gone through and your education, your family support. Uh, do you ever feel like it's just too much to bear? Uh, no, I, I don't feel like it's, I don't feel like it's too much to bear because I've got a, a high threshold of, of what I can relate to in life. I, I think yeah. we all have a perspective that, that we've been given about what a difficult situation is. And mm -hmm. honestly, every morning that I wake up, my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell. I'm having a good day. That means I've had a good day yeah. every day that I've been out of prison. My worst day out here is better than my best day in there. So if I can always yeah. remind myself that, hey, Damon, you're not in prison. And that's what I've had to do on, on tougher days. I've got to take a step back just like anybody else. I've got to take a deep breath and start my day over and remind myself, hey, man, dude, I don't care what you think you're going through. This isn't prison. You know what a bad day looks like. This ain't it. Um but do I have to take a step back from it sometimes? Yeah, sure I do. I'll give you an example, man. Great example of this. I have this foundation, Be A Coffee Bean Foundation. And what we're trying to do is try to, I heard the statistic that said less than 2% of the teachers in America are black men. So when I heard that, I also read a study that said if a black boy has a black male teacher between second and fifth grade, that boy is 40% more likely to graduate high school one day. He's 20% more likely to become a teacher and go to college because he's seen that it can be done. He sees himself inside mm -hmm. that teacher. So I thought to myself, if, if we're having a hard time finding black men to become teachers, I know a place where there's a lot of black men prison because yeah. we've locked so many of them up. Right. Yeah. So my idea was like, I can go into a prison system because every state allows certain felons to become teachers. I can be a teacher with my felonies, mm -hmm. right? I don't have crimes against women and children. I never knew crime. that. Yeah. So every state employs felons. They just don't talk about it. Wow. So I went to the state of Louisiana, which is right next door to Texas, where I live, and they loved it. They're like, OK, let's start this program. off." The governor's yeah. people loved it. So we start doing the program. We start picking our guys. And I get to a point 
where in the rural parts of Louisiana and in the suburbs of Louisiana, these Oof. white women, yeah. these white women yeah. find out from one of their, their hardcore sheriffs out there in Louisiana in, in, in the Shreveport area, this, I'm going to keep my, my opinion private about what I think about that man. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they get out there and they start dumpster fires at all their school board meetings. Like you see on, on TV with all this stuff where they start dumpster fires at school board meetings. And it's a very loud vocal minority of people. I tell people all the time, these loud people at these school board meetings, there's not many of them, but they're so loud. They freak people right. out and everybody just caves into them. Worst thing we can do is to cater to these people. Because I went in and tried to tell these women, Hey, listen, your kids and your grandkids will never be taught by these men. Well, why do you say that? Well, your kids and grandkids are white and they live in the rural parts of Louisiana or the suburb. Mm -hmm. The kids that are going to be affected by these guys are black, black children, because my program is to go into a state prison system, find incarcerated black men that don't have a serious crime. They, they have about four years left on their sentence. And, and my foundation will educate these men, give them an elementary education bachelor's degree pay for it entirely. Right. And when they get out of prison, I'll meet them at the gate. These are guys mm -hmm. that have been heavily vetted to be the kind of guys that can handle this responsibility. I have a used car for them, a wardrobe for them to teach in. Uh, the first two years they're out of prison, I'll, I'll house them. I give them housing and I'll give them the first two years of student teacher salary and their health care. And I, all I want these guys to do is to go teach in the most underperforming majority black schools in Louisiana where the crime rates the highest. We're talking about the ninth ward of New Orleans. We're talking about right. East Baton Rouge. So I'm right. telling these women, your kids and grandkids will never be taught by these guys. You don't have to right. worry about it in the suburbs. You'll never right. see these guys, but your kids and grandkids may have their lives saved one day when these kids that these men can get through to don't kill your kids and grandkids one day when they go commit a crime. Right. But it wouldn't yeah, stick. Yeah. It, oh, I had to wow. deal with this ignorance, this, wow. the, this ignorance, nonstop and, and the governor of Louisiana pulled out of the whole program blew me away this guy's a Democrat man John really? Bell Edwards yeah, John Bell Edwards is a Democrat and he pulls out of the whole program because he can't take the heat of these white rural women raising hell in his state about a wow. program that won't even affect them these are his constituents man blew me away wow. I was when you told me about it I, th I thought immediately that's a great idea why not bring and it brings me to this point I heard you talk about maybe like two years ago you had given a uh, speech to University of Georgia, and there was a kid who had been suspended with a marijuana charge, and you reached out and you immediately took him to a maximum security prison. Yeah. To your theory, if those kids in these high violent areas, they have someone that is an adult that looks like them actually telling them the real story, it's instant credibility. As you know, credibility is everything. And to you know, uh, come up with a curriculum for these. I thought I think it's a great idea. Uh, it's unfortunate that that I think you should stick with that, man. I, that's something that I know a lot of people that would get involved in that and would would definitely perk a lot of eyebrows, and including myself. Uh, we definitely should talk more about that when when this conversation is over. That is. I I, I'm down. I'm not. I'm not stopping. I mean, I, I'm. I'm mm -hmm. not the kind of guy that takes no for an answer like that. That's okay. Right. You want to fight? We'll go. So I, I'll find another state that allowed me to do it because AIG, the the big insurance corporation, when they heard about this, man, AIG was like, "How much would it cost to take five guys in a cohort, five mm -hmm. black men from beginning to end?" Gave them a mm -hmm. number. They gave me a check. Go find your guys. You got mm -hmm. a program. So I've got this program ready to go in any state that wants to do it, man. I'm I'm trying to find a state to just plug this in. No taxpayer yeah. money involved. And if I can get someone, here's what I think the formula is. I've learned a way to not do this program. 
the way to not do this program is to not go and communicate the very thing we talked about in this whole conversation, communication. Mm -hmm. I've got to communicate to the person on the far right in whatever state I'm going into, the right. person that has the biggest microphones in front of them to speak to the far right to right. tell them, hey, this is for their kids, not our kids, because it's a them, them and us thing, right? This right. is for their kids. This is not for our our kids aren't going to be taught by these men, but but in this our taxpayer dollars don't even go to this program. There's no taxpayer mm -hmm. money involved. This is right. a good program for those kids. So let those kids have this program and it, it won't affect us over here. That's right. what I, I need. Yeah, I don't think people see the benefit of they just see one side of it. They don't see how it it's a rehabilitation process for the inmate, for I don't for the person that was incarcerated. So I think it's a it's a win-win. And again, I go back to this quote that you have in your book that I think kind of sums everything that we just talked about on these last few minutes of your position determines perspective. That's right. And some of these people don't have the perspective of seeing inside of someone that was incarcerated, how they can obviously have a positive effect on the younger, younger generation. So I think that that kind of some buttons it up in a nutshell, man. Yeah, because uh, what better guy, what better person to pull a kid aside in the hallway of one of these inner cities where the crime rates right. are highest in a black school and say, hey, son, let me tell you about the choices you make. Let me tell you <laughs> right. my story, man, because a little brother, right. I've been where you've been. I didn't have a dad mm -hmm. growing up. I, my, mm -hmm. the, the only men that I looked up to were in the streets. And let me tell you where the streets got me. You know, right. who else has that kind of cred, man? No one. Right. Public education no. has failed these kids over mm -hmm. and over again. What I'm trying to do, man, I, I got uh, several things this program does. One, it gives mm -hmm. second chances to men and men, men that have earned it, right? And we right. are a nation. We like to claim we are a nation of forgiveness and second chances. But a lot right. of that stuff just looks good and sounds good. It's not really real on paper because right. I would tell you that in America, punishment never stops. And what I mean mm -hmm. by punishment right. never stops is that Damon West, Damon West, this guy that has a master's degree, best-selling author, keynote speaker all over the world. I got a movie coming out, a Netflix limited series maybe about my life soon. Oh wow. Successful businessman, family man. If I had to go work for someone else tomorrow, there's a lot of jobs I can't even get because I'm going to check no. one box that says mm -hmm. I committed a crime and I'm a felon. That means punishment never stops. And if we are really a nation that says punishment never that we believe in second chances, then we'll find a way to give them. So, this right. provides second chances to the men that have earned it pre-interventions for the kids that need it the most. And it mm -hmm. fixed that teacher shortage that we have going on in America right now, because the teachers that are going to leave education and go somewhere else first are the ones that are in these inner cities. Cause why wouldn't you, if you're an right. inner city teacher in all these suburbs and better paying jobs, you're opening up because teachers are leaving in droves. You go to the other school. Now your inner cities are understaffed. They were already hurt right. in the beginning. So right. makes sense on a lot of levels. I'm going to find a state. I'm a fine. Okay. Story. Okay. And we're, we're going to, we're going to talk after this a lot more. Yeah. So who, who was, who gave you your second chance? And I want to go back to, uh, there's a, uh, there's a moment where, uh, you had your best day when you were incarcerated. I don't know if you remember that day. Yeah. You, it was uh, a group that would come in. Can you talk more about that? Cause that was the first I had heard of groups actually walking into, um, you know, prisons and having an effect. I never, I never heard it from the other side. I've heard about groups doing it, but I've never heard a testimonial from uh, anyone that was involved with the with the groups. Yeah. So, I mean, these guys would come in. They would call them ACTS, Adoration, Community, mm -hmm. Theology, and Service. These men would come in and spend four days with us, man. Four-day retreats inside of a prison. And 
man, no one wanted to be around us for four days. Man, we're the cursed, the wicked, the sinners, the incarcerated. But these men truly lived out. They truly lived out that gospel, that Matthew 25, 36. When I was in prison, you visited me. And these men came in there for four days and shared the Holy Spirit with us. I mean, it, it was watching what happened in that room, man, all these guys crying like babies because the Holy Spirit worked wow. them over. Man. And the fellowship we had from these men that would come in for the community, these men that were for four days gave up their jobs, their lives, their families, the free world, they gave it all up for four days yeah. to spend time with us, man. Yeah. Truly taught me the, the lesson of servant leadership because servant leadership is helping other people reach their goals in life, helping to raise other mm -hmm. people up to a different station of life. And so these men taught me servant leadership. And I told my mom, when I get out of prison, I got to find these guys. I had the best time in prison yeah. hanging out with them. And and when I got out of prison, she made sure I found them because she took me, she, she signed me up for my first wow. retreat on the free world. And yeah. she said, go find your friends. And that's what I did. And that's where my first set of friends came from, from the same group of men that came and reached out to me when I was in prison. Wow. Now I get to go into prisons with them. And you hit the ground running because within, what, nine months you were working at a you was working as a paralegal at one of the top firms in Texas. Yeah. Firms in Texas. You were trying to, you know, uh, work your way into becoming a motivational speaker, speaking to young people. You hit the ground running. And when I read that, it was like this man is on a mission. This man is, is a, his story definitely needs to be pushed out as much as possible. So let me let me ask you this, because I know we're, we're coming up on time here. The moment you were able to hit the masses, the, the story with you meeting uh, Dabo Sweeney and you uh, being at the uh, the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Awards, if you could tell that story. Yeah, man. So about 14 months out of prison, uh, you know, I've got this dream of sharing this, this story with college athletes, man, because I was a college athlete. And and you know how it is whenever you, you, you know, they bring speakers in and stuff like that. I, I know I can right. be one of these speakers and I've got this message. It's incredible. Right. But I don't know any college football coaches. I don't have any access to them. But a buddy of mine invited me to the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award in January of 2017. Mm -hmm. And I go there. There's eight coaches in the room that night. In the first hour I'm there, I talk to seven of them. And they all shoot mm -hmm. me down. Man. No, no. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about leaving. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center. I'm licking my wounds. I'm feeling sorry for myself. But I reminded myself about that perspective thing. I'm like, you know what? No, you survived prison, Damon. Prison was way worse than this. This is nothing, man. Yeah. This last coach is going to tell you no to your face. And the last coach was the hardest guy to get to. Dabo Swinney had just beaten Alabama two nights before for the national championship. Everybody mm -hmm. wants this man's time. Right. And so, man, I stalked Dabo around that room that night. And, I mean, I finally pounced on Dabo. I give him a minute of my best stuff. And, and the interaction was awful, really, to be honest with you, man. I didn't, I didn't think Dabo was – his body was terrible. He couldn't get away from that. But four months later, man, the DFO, the director of football operations at Clemson, got to me, and he said, man – he said, Coach Sweeney met you at the award show in Houston. He'd love to have you come talk to the team. Dude, yeah. you have August 1st open. Man, I'm like, dude, I got every first open. I got nothing <laughs> right. in my life. Right. So I did. I spoke to Dabo's team August 1st of 17. Then Dabo plugged me into Dabo, to Nick Saban, to Kirby Smart. Wow. All these coaches wow. in America are calling my cell phone because Dabo's giving it out to everybody. Wow. But a year after that presentation for Clemson, uh, it was August of 2018, I got mm. a phone call. And on the other end of my phone was a guy named John Gordon. Now, John mm. is a massive motivational speaker and author, man. This guy's huge. Yeah. Man. John is John's like sold five million books. I and mean, the guy's huge. Wow. He's on my phone, man. He's calling me. I'm like, John, how do you know who I am? He said, Man, Dabo mm. Sweeney. He said, Dabo just pulled me in his office. I got done talking to the team. He pulls me in the office, tells me your story. 
And he said, Damon, the world needs the coffee bean message, Damon. Let's write a book. Right. We'll call it the coffee bean. Let's bring this message yeah. to the world. Yeah. And man, my life exploded after that. Man, I got um, I got launched. I tell people all the time, it was like hooking up a little Red Rider wagon to a rocket ship, man. I mean, I don't <laughs> even know at some points, man, how do I handle this? But, but now I'm in that orbit and I've, I've settled yeah. out. And now I'm in this, this space where I'm getting ready, where I'm, I'm just able to go out and share this message and change lives on an yeah. entirely different level. But we all have to have help along the way, man. And that's why right. when bring this back full circle, when you reached out to me on Instagram, mm -hmm. it was on Instagram where you reached out to yeah. me and said, Hey man, yeah. I want to have you on my show. And I looked you up and I'm like, you know what? I want to do your show. I respect mm -hmm. the hell out of people that just step up and put and you know, put it out there on the line and ask mm -hmm. the question. I tell people all the time, you've got to ask the question because the yeah. only question you know the answer to is the one you don't ask. That's a no. <laughs> right. If I would have left that room in Houston, Texas in January 2017. Without wow. asking that question, Dabo Sweeney, we're not mm -hmm. here today. We're not, the world doesn't have the coffee bean message. This story is not being told on the level it is, but I stuck around to ask that question. A low probability shot, but it <laughs> being the biggest yes in the world. Yeah, that's amazing. So what other projects? So you have another book out, The Locker Room. You have, uh, what other projects are you working on currently that you can talk about? Got another book coming out with John Gordon called How to Be a Coffee okay. Bean, The 111 Principles of, of Being a Coffee Bean. And we're just, we finally have so many people are like, hey, man, do you have more on the coffee bean? You have more on the coffee bean. So now, yeah, yeah. we're going to give it to you. 111 Principles of Being a Coffee Bean. I uh, got a movie project with Dak Prescott is my partner in this deal, man. Dak started his own media company and Amazing. I'm going to be the first, yeah, the first project he ever has. Dak and I. He brought me in to speak to the Cowboys a couple weeks ago. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dak sees the coffee bean message and he sees it as something that's powerful. And Dak, yeah. man, I'm going to tell you, man, wonderful servant of a man, servant leader mm -hmm. as uh, as big as there ever was. This guy loves what I think about Dak Prescott. And I told him this, man, mm -hmm. when I met him and got to hang out with him and, and Zeke and those guys mm -hmm. is that the thing about Dak is that being the quarterback of the Cowboys is not his identity. That is the right. vehicle he gets to use to change lives all over the place. And he uses that vehicle for the right way. And I, and I respect the hell out of that because so many people could get caught up in that being their identity. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yes, you, sure. You, lived, you lived in the NFL, you yeah. know. So, but uh, yeah, we got, we're hoping to, to sell this thing. We got, we're one yes away, man. We're gonna try okay. to sell it to Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Amazon Prime, uh, Disney Plus. We'll all be doing pitch meetings for the next month. Trying to sell. That's amazing. That's amazing. Before I get you out, do you, can you still sling it around a little bit? I see the football is behind. Dude, man. Hell yeah, man. I can get out. I can throw that ball. I can still throw 60, 65 yards. In fact, I told Dak that. So Dak basically called. He thought he was calling my bluff. He's like, all right. When I met him for the first time, I, he said, man, we're going to work out. It was in April. He said, we're working out at SMU uh -huh. on Friday morning. Come on out. Throw the ball around. Man, I showed up and Dak, oh, yeah. Dak pulled me aside. He said, Man, a lot of guys didn't think you were going to show. I'm like, Dude, it's hard. <laughs> right, because right. I can still throw a ball 60, 65 yards. I can, yeah. man, I got a, a rocket for an all. I'm 46 years old. Yeah. Man, these guys <laughs> came away that day. They're like, Dude, man, you've got the juice, man. You, That's I, I can throw like some of the backups in the NFL, man. <laughs> hey, you know what my yeah. plan is? Check this out. So I really think I told Dak and, 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 and uh, Coach McCarthy the other day when I spoke to the Cowboys. Mm -hmm. I said, hey, my plan is, Dak, if this goes well, our movie, our, our series launches and it becomes a big thing. Uh, I looked it up. The oldest person to ever take a snap in the NFL was like 48 years old in eight months. And I said, well, <laughs> yeah. in two and a half years, I will have that person beat. I got to get Jerry to let me suit up for one game to take one snap and we can have the record. So, Jerry could, could could definitely make it happen. He could if he can make, make a dime happen. off of it, he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
Well, David, let's end there, man. I, I really appreciate this conversation. There's a, so much more we could talk about, but I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, again, I, I want to thank you for your time and your perspective. Uh, I'm going to reach out to my good friend who's the head coach at Maryland, Mike Loxley. Uh, he would definitely love this message for his his um, his his team, and just for anyone that that hadn't heard the story, I think it it could go a long way. And you're doing a lot of great things, and hopefully, uh, you know, we we keep in touch after this. And uh, I, I'm definitely going to be a fan of everything you have going on, and and one of your biggest supporters, brother. I would appreciate that with Mike so much. And he may have been in Alabama when I spoke to yeah. Alabama in 2017, yeah. but I've never been to Maryland to speak to the team. But I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you. When we get offline, I'm going to tell you, there's a date that I'm already in Maryland that we can set okay. it up to where I go speak to this team, and they're okay. in camp. It'll be a Friday night. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Well, hey, brother, Damon, thank you, brother. I really appreciate this. This yeah, is going to help a lot of people. Thank I you for the opportunity, man.